This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Matthew Garcia about his new publication out of Harvard University Press. Today, we will be interviewing Matthew Garcia about his new publication out of Harvard University Press titled Eli and the Octopus, the CEO who tried to reform one of the world's most notorious corporations. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you, Nathan. It's great to be here. Who facilitated the reproduction of photos and provided helpful citation research during copy editing of your book, Eli and the Octopus? Uh, It was a variety of folks. Um, I think I should probably give um, the first uh, shout out to... uh, Juliana Devon, who is a wonderful researcher and grad student at uh, Columbia University. Um, She did a lot of the final um, tracking down of sources, and she even went to locations in New York where Eli lived. Um, Michael Moritz was this really wonderful genealogist in the city that uh, is an expert on um, Jewish history. And so did a lot of tracking down of, um, you know, birth certificates and death certificates and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and then in general, um, there was a lot of, uh, sharing with, with folks, um, who are experts in Jewish history or Latin American history. A couple that come to mind, um, Hasia Diner, um, is an expert on Jewish history and kind of kept me, um, on the straight and narrow when it comes to Jewish history. That is not my forte, but it was um, essential for this project. And then Carl Jacoby has been a, a um, colleague from way back when we were at Brown University together. He's now at Columbia. He's written biographies and um, really his biography of William Ellis uh, sort of somewhat inspired me to pursue biography as a genre. Um, and so he read it and Hasia read it um, uh, in anticipation of the final version of the book. And those are a few people that were really important. Who else or what planted the seed for your book about a rabbi who became the CEO of a multinational food corporation and would agree to labor contracts with Cesar Chavez and the UFW? Well, it really started with a conversation, an oral history with, um, Marshall Gans, who was the son of a rabbi, uh, he grew up in Bakersfield, California, but 
His claim to fame was that he was in the inner circle of the United Farm Workers movement, and uh, he organized a lot of farm workers. Um, he was also involved in contract negotiations. But we sat down for my previous book, which was uh, which is titled um, "From the Jaws of Victory," and he was noting that. Um, amongst the various CEOs that they dealt with uh, that were trying to persuade to sign contracts with the union, often uh, the CEOs that were most amenable were Jewish. Uh, and there was one that really stood out, and that was Eli Black, who was the head of United Brands. And he was curious about it because he was the son of a rabbi, but he also wondered you know, what was the motivation of this particular uh, CEO. And that sent me on my, my search. You were at the University of Southern California and Princeton University recently or during the early stages of this project. Why is that important for people in the New Books Network to know? Well, I think it's really important to understand that history is not just born from a person's mind and even the research that they do. Um, there are checks and balances. There's feedback that you get. And often you hold uh, intellectual community uh, with people that know things that you don't. And so two of those people were Julian Zelizer at Princeton that hosted me, had gotten wind that I was writing this history. He's also someone who's written biography and also very invested in Jewish history. So I was able to bring an early version of this project and they read it and gave me feedback. Um, I actually got a lot from that experience because I had uh, initially thought that Eli Black was a practitioner of Tikkun Olam, um, but in fact was not, um, and got really good feedback there that was able to help me pinpoint the actual, the kind of Judaism that Eli Black practiced from his colleagues. Um, and then Steve Ross uh, was also incredibly generous with his time, and he hosted me at uh, the University of Southern California and was an editor of that first publication that I wrote about Eli Black, where I actually claimed him to be practicing Tikkun Olam, which was uh, a way of healing the world through your um, Judaism. Um, Eli was not that uh, was not a practitioner of that, um, but Steve was someone who saw the promise of this book, shared me with uh, his Jewish community, he runs the Jewish, he, at the time he ran the Jewish Institute at that uh, uh, institution at University of Southern California, and uh, continued to have faith in me as I uh, finished the book. How does Eli fit into the history of business and conservative politics in America? So Eli, uh, I think, is not the kind of conservative that we think of conservatism today that is um, pro-growth and pro-business um, at whatever cost. Um, he was very much conscious of the consequences of his business practices on his employees, but also on the wider world and the people that consumed his products. Um, and so in that regard, uh, he's a little bit different than those that we studied today, though I'd say that I was inspired uh, by what was in the water as I was writing this book, what was the zeitgeist of America, and it still is there today, this idea of effective altruism, the idea that you could do good through business. So it keeps percolating. Uh, Sam Altman's uh, ouster from OpenAI and then his return was partly about 
what um, impact that corporation is going to have on society and the idea that it needed to do good in the world. And that was part of the debate around that uh, firing slash rehiring. Eli Black was um, in a very different time, but still was very much concerned with the idea that his business could do good in the world after it had done so much bad in the world when he didn't own it. And that was primarily under the um, the corporation United Fruit, which has a long history of exploitation and misdeeds in Latin America. And so when he purchased it and made it part of United uh, Brands, the new company, uh, he was trying to uh, rehabilitate um, this company and do right by its workers and right by its consumers. Can you provide a summary of your book's central themes and also give the New Books Network an outline of why you chose to write biography? Right. So the central challenge, I would say, of the book is to ask the question, can capitalism um, be harnessed for the good of workers and for the good of society? Or is it only for those who profit from that uh, particular company. And Eli Black is a good uh, subject for that because he actually believed that his company could make money and do good in the world. The good in the world that he was trying to do was to feed as many people as possible. His company was made up not just of United Fruit, which was the leading banana producer um, in in the world and for um, U.S. consumers coming from mostly Latin America, uh, but also he produced, he was uh, owner of uh, Morel Meats, which was the fourth largest meat producer uh, located primarily in Iowa and uh, South Dakota. And then he was the leading lettuce producer uh, owning Interharvest, which was part of the larger United Brands um, coming from California and disseminating across uh, the United States and beyond. So one, he thought that his business could feed the world. Uh, the second is that he could enter uh, relations with unions, um, particularly those run by Cesar Chavez, the United Farm Workers and Lettuce, and a man named Oscar Galvarello, who ran the union Citroterco that represented banana workers in Honduras, and that um, the conditions under which those workers worked was not exploitative and yet profitable. And his story is really interesting because it shows the difficulty of achieving of ch- achieving uh, that goal. Um, I think it's fair to say that he did not succeed, though the reasons why he didn't succeed have a lot to do with things that were, uh, you know, external to him. A war in the Middle East that increased the cost of fuel uh, for transporting those goods, and then what we call climate change today, um, hurricanes and tropical storms that really wiped out the uh, banana plantations that his profits were so dependent on. So the story covers uh, the attempt of this uh, individual to um, make business do good for the world and for his shareholders in the failure um, that uh, he encountered in in trying to uh, achieve that incredible feat. And why biography? Well, oftentimes uh, a business is identified so much with that CEO. We think of 
for example, Tesla today, and we think of Elon Musk, um, we think of Jeff Bezos and uh, um, Whole, and um, Whole Foods and Amazon. Um, so uh, it is uh, for better, or for good, or for ill, the ways in which society sees the success or failure of a company. Um, through the experience of one person, and most often it's one man. And for my purposes, it was this man, Eli Black. What was Eli Black's leadership style, and what were the key challenges that Eli faced in attempting to reform the notorious corporation? So Eli Black uh, was someone who did not have a lot of experience with unions. In fact, he was somewhat dubious of unions for, because of his father's experience. His father had been a shohet, um, a kosher butcher in um, the Lower East Side uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Um, and the shohet union was uh, notoriously corrupt. Um, but by the time he owned United uh, brands and in particular Interharvest, which is the largest producer of lettuce and United Fruit, the largest producer of bananas, he had to deal with unions. And he actually believed that <coughs> he could benefit his workers and improve his company's image by working closely with unions. So that was an extraordinarily extraordinary act for him. Um, and this was something that ran counter to the advice of leading economic think thinkers of the time. Milton Friedman was the one who was saying, you know, CEOs should only be concerned with producing profits for his shareholders and to think of nothing else. But Eli Black tilted against those windmills, tilted against uh, Milton Friedman's advice and tried to work with those uh, um, um, union leaders uh, to achieve good um, for his workers and, and for the, the consumers. In your opinion, how effective were Eli's reform efforts and why? So he set an example, I think, um, that is now followed by uh, another farm worker organization. This is uh, Migrant Justice that um, signed the Milk with Dignity uh, Agreement with Ben and Jerry's. So in some ways, Ben and Jerry's is the heir to Eli Black in the sense that um, they could work with workers to um, ensure uh, justice in the workplace. And so what Eli Black did is he signed contracts, particularly in California, with um, the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez, when the rest of his peers who were lettuce growers were trying to uh, circumvent the uh, United Farm Workers, wanted to undermine the United Farm Workers by signing contracts, sweetheart deals with the Teamsters. Eli Black rejected that and uh, argued that he could distinguish his lettuce from that other lettuce um, by uh, identifying with the social justice movement and the farm workers movement. Um, as I said, it failed, but it failed for reasons that had nothing to do with uh, a lack of uh, faith in, in, in social justice. It had to do with things that we now uh, uh, identify as real threats um, to our economy and to our world, such as climate change, political instability, war in uh, the Middle East. And that's all there in, in this book. It's, it's an incredible tale. 
and I think that it would be a mistake to walk away from uh, the book and the failures of Eli Black as uh, a sign that um, uh, those that run companies should just give up on the idea of doing good through their business or um, trying to strike uh, uh, contracts with their workers um, to improve their conditions and improve the image of their company. Were there any specific events or decisions by Eli that stood out to you as particularly impactful? Yeah, one of the things that's really important, um, I've, I've already said much about his uh, decision to sign contracts with Cesar Chavez, but he was un- undoing um, a long history of dastardly deeds by the United Fruit Company in Latin America. United Fruit is probably best known for... Um, undermining the democratically elected uh, government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954, uh, soliciting the CIA to undermine him, um, and the U.S. participated in that um, and and supported that. Um, there are many, many other examples. Uh, Pablo Neruda wrote a, um, a, a poem excoriating uh, United Fruit um, for its attracting the dictatorship of flies throughout Latin America. So it was a notorious company and Eli took it on, um, pursued it in 1968, uh, closed the deal in 69 and by 1970 owned it. And one of the things that he did that distinguish it from distinguish him from his predecessors is that he raised the pay of his workers six times, um, the levels of his nearest competitor standard fruit, um, he invested in uh, hospitals that ended malaria and polio uh, in Honduras. Uh, he invested in scholarships for um, the children of the workers uh, without any obligation to come and work for the company once they uh, got their education. Uh, he funded the entire educational system in La Lima, Honduras, Um and he made them uh, part owners to some extent of the company by paying them not just those really good wages, but also uh, giving them stock and giving them the ability to own their own, own homes. Um, he replaced all the North Americans that had been imported into Honduras as executive, and he replaced them with Hondurans. So this was something that was unheard of in the time. In fact, uh, New York Times, Boston Globe, uh, the Chicago Tribune started to hear that there were winds of change around this notorious company and sent correspondence there. And I document this in the book. By 1972, um, it was being trumpeted as the most socially conscious company um, in the Americas. And Eli Black played that up and promoted the company um, through this vision of social responsibility, which he spoke about uh, extensively um, during his time as CEO. Um, so I think that's really, you know, the the transformation of United Fruit. It's the um, unwritten, now it is written, it's in the book, but the, it was the unwritten history of this dastardly company that most people uh, identify with evil. Um, and he, in his last five years, was able to turn it um, towards a story of redemption and uh, um I guess, um, reclamation to some extent. How did you explore the corporate culture within this notorious corporation? And what insights did you gain about corporate governance? Yeah, so what was interesting about Eli is that as he was uh, becoming a business leader, he had been a rabbi 
and he started taking classes at Columbia University. And he took classes with uh, Adolf Burl, who was someone that was part of um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, brain trust. Um, they helped basically save capitalism during the uh, Great Depression. And one of his innovation was that he would create um, a board of shareholders that a CEO would have to res- um, answer to. Um, by the time that Eli Black was owning his company, um, and he had learned right from 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 Adolf Burl, um, so he took shareholders very seriously. But by that point in the 1970s, shareholders could be made up of really temporary investors who were just trying to um, uh, take advantage of increased value in, in uh, shares and then trade them so that they could cash in. And um, the shareholder board uh, becomes a kind of instrument of coercion, um, not just for the CEO, but for the entire company. And and I think that it's really important to recognize that um, by the 1970s, Eli Black is subject to these uh, short-term investors. They're known as um, uh, arbitrage investors. they engaged in arbitrage. Um, and so arbitrage is the story of, you know, these short-term investors that enabled him to buy the company, but then always were threatening to pull out if he didn't increase the share price. So that was another tension that he dealt with. And I think it's really important to recognize that capitalism had evolved to a point where it wasn't what you were producing. In his case, it was bananas and meat and lettuce that are important, but he's actually producing profits by the uh, increased share prices of the performance of the company from year to year. And because of those uh, challenges uh, associated with politics and the Middle East, and because of those challenges of uh, climate change and tropical storms, um, he was up against it each year. He didn't make uh, a windfield pro- uh, windfill profit uh, from the year before, and shareholders are always threatening to uh, to either pull their money out, or in his case, uh, threaten to uh, unseat him as CEO. And so he had those pressures, and I think the book is really good about exploring the unique pressures that CEOs began to be under um, in his time, and I think very much are still under those pressures today. We have explored Eli's story a lot, but can you give us an overview of some of the um, other supporting characters in this in your uh, narrative? So what other supporting characters are in your narrative? Yeah, so another person that's really important and was critical to me writing the book was a woman named Anna Puharich. Eli was someone who believed very much in philanthropy and he gave primarily to Jewish organizations. Um, and this woman, Anna Puharich, was working in the um, area of philanthropy. She had worked for a spinoff of the um, um, Mott Foundation uh, that was dedicated to progressive organizations, social justice organizations and causes. And she persuaded uh, Eli to make investments in um, causes that were you know, beyond the Jewish uh, interest. Uh, she herself was um, part Jewish, and so she and she had been married to Jewish men, and so she understood um, the impulse to uh, to 
you know, realize your philosophy in your actions in the world. Um, so she was the one that helped introduce uh, Eli to Cesar Chavez and to kind of build a partnership that was beyond just, you know, a, 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 a union leader asking for things and trying to get as much for his workers from the CEO and the CEO trying to retain as much uh, wealth and, and, and control from the union. Instead, what Anna did was she, she was a go-between between, between the, the two men and helped build a kind of partnership whereby that lettuce coming from California proudly carried the United uh, brand label, which we know as being the banana label Chiquita, and carried the UFW flag, um, which was uh, distinguished by a black eagle on every head of lettuce. And that was a way of trying to distinguish these products, but it also was a sign of the kind of unique relationship that Eli built um, through Anna's uh, ingenuity and and um, and uh, networking, really. Eli, in fact, uh, became so enamored with Anna that I cover in the book um, his uh, kind of uh, stepping beyond uh their friendship and trying to woo her with uh, gifts and she rebuffed him, but um, they had a very close intimate relationship. And this was a moment of weakness, I think for Eli, which I think many people who've read the book, they, they really love that part because it kind of humanizes him, even though it shows him to be uh, um, flirting with uh, being uh, unfaithful to his wife, Shirley. Speaking of being unfaithful, were there ethical dilemmas faced by Eli in the corporation? Yeah, I think the biggest uh, ethical dilemma was how to manage union contracts that he himself did not uh, agree to. Um, And that was mostly found in uh, the subsidiary of Morel Meats. So Morel was the fourth largest uh, meat producer in the country. It was part of United uh, Brands, um, which he built. And those contracts were achieved um, during the 1930s when um, it was the Great Depression. Um, The CIO was organizing rank-and-file workers and really empowering the kind of um, industrial worker of that time. And butchers were amongst those industrial workers that were getting really great contracts. But by the 1970s, those contracts had begin begun to weigh down the profitability of Morel, especially with new companies such as the Iowa beef producers, uh, IBP, that was coming on and was producing beef um, in in a more efficient and uh, less costly way. So Eli essentially betrayed his principles of working with unions in the case of Morel by breaking that union. And I go through a very painful process of, of breaking that union and really breaking um, a, a, a city, a Midwestern, small Midwestern city, Ottumwa, Iowa, and the consequences for that. It is really the story, one story amongst many of the Rust Belt that uh, occurred in the post-war period. And Atamwa is um, the kind of sacrificial lamb for a lot of the social justice that he's trying to achieve both in Honduras and California with uh, Latino leaders like Oscar Galvarela and Cesar Chavez. So 
um, if there is a kind of um, weak point or a betrayal of his principles, it's definitely in central Iowa, Iowa with mostly um, people of European descent um, and non-Jewish, but still European descent who lost their jobs and um, were gutted by this, by this, uh, these decisions, these business decisions that Eli um, was behind. What about unexpected twists or turns? And what lessons do you think those events offer for readers? Yeah, I think one of the twists um, was this idea of stock buybacks. Um, Eli uh, was someone who practiced um, this uh, financial maneuver. Today, um, Warren Buffett very much defends this idea and has fought back on ideas of taxing um, companies that take uh, profit from one year and then buy up stock to increase the value of that stock. And and instead of taking that money and putting it in research and development or putting it into better benefits for their workers, um, Eli did this um, at a time where it had not become the kind of standard practice and accepted practice of um, corporate leaders. In fact, up until 1973, which was the first year he made profits, um, Eli had kind of earned a, a kind of favored um, status amongst Fortune magazine and Forbes magazine and all the business uh, magazines that are and, and publications that are writing about him, Wall Street Journal. But when he takes profit from ni- in 1973 and chooses to increase the share price by buying stock rather than putting it into better benefits for the workers or research and development for um, more efficient production of meat or or bananas. Um, Those journalists really turn on him and they question this practice. Um, They show that he is increasing the value of his company in the service of shareholders, um, not by uh, and not by uh, improving conditions for workers and not by increasing the sales of bananas or increasing the sales of lettuce. So it uh, one observer called it uh, fiscal masturbation. <laughs> I like that characterization. Um, but I think it's a real interesting moment where today we see stock buybacks as a uh, de rigueur um, for, for uh corporate leaders like uh, Warren Buffett. But back then, um, it was it was a, a tainted act. And, and Eli Black certainly was tainted by this, this move. Um, so much so that it really led to his downfall, a questioning of his principles, and ultimately his demise. What role did the octopus symbolism play in Eli and the octopus? So the octopus is um, um, an identity that's placed on uh, the worst uh, companies in um, the history of modern history of uh, the world. So in the United States in particular. So uh, we think of Standard Oil and its um, tentacles throughout Latin America at one point uh, threatening to uh, take over um, oil reserves in Mexico. Um, and really affecting all uh, life in, in that country. We also think of uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad um, and the establishment of the Transcontinental Railroad and how it affected communities across North America. So it is a kind of um, 
identity that's reserved for the worst of the worst. And United Fruit was the octopus of the early 20th century in Latin America. Um, it had it ten, its tentacles in several different uh, countries from Costa Rica to Colombia to Honduras and Guatemala and beyond. Um, and it strangled all those that uh, tried to, you know, uh, divide it or keep it from um, feeding itself and, and making a profit for its, uh, its, its leaders. Um, I use it in the book, not just for what it meant um, as it applied to United Fruit, but also the ways in which Eli himself got entangled in this octopus, trying to reform the octopus and then being uh, entangled in its tentacles and really pulled down and, and, uh, and it led to his downfall. So it's not just what this company does to um, sovereign countries and people in Latin America, but it also um, took a toll uh, on Eli Black. And, and I, I saw uh, the image of the, the book I, I had in my mind is Eli wrangling and wrestling with this octopus um, believing that he could subdue it. And in the end, the octopus uh, subdued, subdued him. Were there any parallels between events in the book and other real world corporate scandals and reforms that might not include Eli? Other corporate scandals? I mean, not to my mind. Um, that's an interesting question. Um there were always, you know, I make some comparisons to golf and Western. I make some comparisons to, uh, um, there was another corporation um, owned by Jimmy Ling. These companies um, were led by these kind of charismatic um, leaders um, who played fast and loose with uh, the money and that they uh, uh, accumulated um, and um, ultimately uh, either lost their companies or in the case of uh, Charlie Blue Dorn, who ran Golf and Western, died um, living too fast, um, allegedly while um, he had a heart attack while having sex on an airplane coming back from Dominican Republic. Um, so um, not quite scandals in the way that, uh, you know, uh, Eli Black's scandal uh, came came about. Of course, what ended up happening with Eli Black, you can read about it in great uh, detail in my book. But he basically uh, paid the um, paid a requested um, bribe from the president of Honduras, Eduardo uh, Lopez Adiano, uh, to lower tariffs um, on his bananas. And when that was about to be revealed, instead of um, facing uh, the U.S. government and shareholders, um, he chose to jump from the 44th floor of his midtown Manhattan building. Um, it was the Pan American building. It's now the MetLife Met uh, building, to, and he, he dove to his death in 1975. So that was known as Bananagate. Um, in many ways, it's referred to Bananagate because it's so soon after Watergate, and in fact, uh, Eli was a big supporter of Nixon, and I talk about the relationship between Nixon and uh, Eli throughout the book. 
So that's another scandal that uh, um, has a presence in the book and, and is influential, I think, in how people saw the scandal of paying a bribe to uh, a Latin American dictator. Can you go over Eli's decisions and the impact that it had on employees and stakeholders? Did he ever do mass layoffs or anything like that? The biggest mass layoff happened when they closed the uh, primary plant at uh, Ottumwa, Iowa, where Morrell Meats uh, had the longest standing contracts um, for meat cutters um, in the United States. They were known as Local One, and that local uh, union fought hard to uh, retain the benefits that they had earned in 1939. Um, and um, in spite of those efforts, um, they were the really the kind of biggest losers, I would say, in the book, in the sense that they didn't stand a chance against um, a, a company that saw its profits uh, coming through the deals in Honduras or the deals in California. Now, the reality was that Morel was far more important to Eli than he uh, acknowledged, that without Morel, he wasn't going to be able to buy United Fruit. But by the time uh, he he gets on the other side of the Morel deal, um, he's all about sweating as many profits and cutting as many uh cutting as much overhead from Morel as possible to continue to uh, uh, build his new company, United Brands. So I think the book is really interesting about the kind of choices that a CEO must make between its many subsidiaries. And there's more subsidiaries than that that I cover. Um, those, 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 those are the three primary ones. But he at one point owned A&W Root Beer, which was the second largest fast food um restaurant in the country next to McDonald's. He owned Foster Grant uh, Glasses, uh, which was one of the few things that didn't uh, produce foods, and then uh, Baskin Robbins ice cream. Um, so, yeah, I would say that uh, the Morel, uh, the Morel workers were the ones that were the biggest losers, um, partly because um, they were somewhat antiquated by the contracts that they uh enjoyed um, prior to Eli uh, owning United Brands. Critiques. Did you get any critiques about either some of the moments that you present in your book by reviewers, or did you yourself disagree with Eli's approach or decisions? Yeah, two things I say, Um, you know, for me in terms of reading Eli um, and uh, interpreting what was effective and what was not effective. I think in the end, um, I am looking for uh, the ways in which workers um, can benefit from the relationship with a CEO. Um, I was inspired very much um, by what I am witnessing today um, between migrant justice and Ben and Jerry's, which is happening in the state that I live in, Vermont. So I was kind of reading history backwards and through this experience with Eli Black. And I was looking to see to what degree did his philosophy and his approach to uh, running United Brands benefit workers and why it didn't. And I would say one of the things that I would question is 
whether he truly embraced workers as collaborators and whether he truly embraced Cesar Chavez and Oscar Galvarela as um, allies in building a unique company. Um, in the end, I think what we can say is that he made the choices about where he invested in their benefits. So it was um, a kind of corporate um, social welfare um, that he was practicing or corporate driven social justice. And that today has been challenged and reformulated by, uh, in particular, uh, migrant justice, but also the coalition of Immokalee workers who have uh, created a vision of worker driven corporate social responsibility or cor- corporate, ju- uh, excuse me, not corporate, but. Um, uh, worker-driven social responsibility, not corporate-driven social responsibility. And so what I would say is that Eli Black was pra- practicing social responsibility, from a, but from a corporate perspective. Today, the kind of vanguard uh, farm worker organizations such as CIW or Migrant Justice are uh, insisting on a worker-driven social responsibility um, by companies that they enter into agreements with. Um in terms of uh, critiques outside, I mean, I recently read a review about um, that that took issue with me framing the book around his suicide, and that just it seems to be the elephant in the room. You know, um, uh, yes, I was brought to this uh, project by interviewing Marshall Gans, but I'm also drawn to this. Uh, project by the sensational uh, way in which Eli took his own life by jumping from uh, a building in midtown Manhattan. And this is a problem of, uh, uh, you might even say, an occupational hazard of corporate America. Um, We have numerous uh, accounts of people jumping from buildings when their businesses um, either are not doing well or they themselves have done something uh, illegal or questionable. Um, so I wanted to shed some light on that. I wanted us to think about uh, this man as he's dealing with failure and the ways in which um, he steps to that windowsill and contemplates, you know, what 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 uh, uh, contributed to that moment of of doubt and what contributed to that moment of crisis. Um, and then, in fact, in some ways, by reading his story, those that might think of uh, handling, you know, their crises in their lives in that way might think twice about it. Um, in fact, one of the business owners that I consulted in the lead up to writing this book read the book and he said, boy, Eli was not as in much trouble as he thought he was. And reading this book um, shed a lot of light and put things in perspective for me as a business owner. And I was actually gratified by that, uh, that review, um, not one that was published, but one that was shared with my wife. So, you know, if people think it's morbid for me to fixate on, on his death and on his suicide, so be it. But we have many, many examples from Mad Men uh, to uh, Cone Brothers, uh, Hudsucker Proxy, to other examples in the newspaper of businessmen jumping from tall buildings. And I think it was right to, to frame the story in part around this um, sensational suicide. 
Do you have more to say about the tensions between social responsibility and making profits? Yeah, I think for me, um, I wondered if there was ever a point at which the two could even put be put together, right? Could be reconciled. And I guess I'm still not quite sure about that. Um, but I feel that it's a tension worth exploring. Um, if not by other historians, certainly I think it would be nice for other historians to pick out other examples of uh, relationships between worker organizations and a CEO and explore those relationships. But, um, you know, I've had these questions when I go out and I speak about the book and people say, well, you know, of course, capitalism is just for itself and the CEO is all about making money and there's never going to be anything positive um, for the workers. And so workers, you know, should never trust a CEO. On the other hand, we have very few examples of companies where workers take over the company and run the company and run it profitably. There's cooperatives, like in my hometown here or nearby um, in Vermont, uh, there's King Arthur Flower, which is a cooperative. You could call uh, uh, REI a kind of cooperative, but those are kind of unique uh, uh, companies. They're not big corporations. And I think ultimately when we look at where people work and who they work for, it is often for a CEO, a CEO who has a lot of power. And I want this story to kind of shed some light on the responsibilities that CEOs who control so many people's lives and uh, dictate um, the futures of so many of their employees, they need to think about their responsibility. And I would like us to encourage them to embrace this idea of social responsibility. I mean, I think even though Ben and Jerry's is a kind of um, anomalous case in corporate America, I would like it to, I would like to celebrate their agreement with migrant justice, just as I am celebrating Eli Black's attempt to uh, work with Cesar Chavez and work with Oscar Gale Ferreira for the betterment of uh, his workers and um, his society. Because without that, it's just pure, unadulterated capitalism and exploitation. And I think there's always then going to be uh, uh, tension and conflict. So wherever we can encourage conscious good uh, practices and uh, socially conscious behavior um, by CEOs, I think we need to do that. And um, I, I think that that is the kind of reality that we are uh, dealt at this stage of capitalism and human civilization, frankly. Were you satisfied? Did you leave satisfied or were there unanswered questions or loose ends that you want to address here for the New Books Network? Yeah, you know, so I just made a case for why we should uh, believe in um, CEOs' ability or desire to do good um, through their leadership and through business. But I also want to clarify that I think we also need activism and advocacy for workers by unions. So at the end of the day, this book and this example works only because there are unions challenging Eli Black, right? Eli Black doesn't necessarily 
enter into a contract with United Fruit, excuse me, with United Farm Workers Organization without Anna Puharich saying, there's this man, Cesar Chavez, that's trying to do really good things and you should not sign contracts with the Teamsters. You should work with this uh, civil rights leader and uh, labor leader. So we need unions. We need those unions to always be making the case of what is best for workers um, and need to be advocates for worker-driven social responsibility. We also need laws. So that doesn't mean that in the end, uh, uh, it's just going to be a deal that's worked out by, be, between the leader of a union and the leader of a company. Um, I think it's really important to also have things like the Agricultural Labor Relations Act um, in California that um, uh, help structure that relationship ultimately between uh, United uh, Brands and um, and uh, United farm workers, um, but also the, the new farm worker uh, driven um, law, uh, the right to collective bargaining for farm workers in the state of New York. So these are things that I think we need in our uh, uh, political system. Um, and I don't want people to leave this book thinking that uh, I believe that um, the future of capitalism, the future of society, and certainly the future of workers depends solely on the good graces of one man who leads a company. Any final thoughts before we go? Um, yeah, I, I think one thing I'd like us to think about is uh, to think about histories that are don't reside in the black and white. I've, I've had people say, why you as a labor historian writing about a CEO? Um, I think we need to re uh, reckon with people who uh, kind of break molds and stand outside of um, easy categories. And, um, and in many ways that uh, captures the way life is lived um, in uh, in this country, in the United States. Um, there are people that um, live in the gray zones that have to make uh, different, difficult decisions. Sometimes they make good decisions. Sometimes they make bad decisions. But ultimately, you know, it's those real world decisions and uh, uh, the, 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 the wrestling with uh, the kind of moral dilemmas uh, that I think make history interesting and make individuals interesting. Um, I want us to just not run towards our familiar uh, uh, political moorings uh, and to think beyond and, and across uh, the kind of political lines that we draw for ourselves and, and that exist within society. So this is my attempt to think beyond labor history uh, and to um, uh, have um, people that think about, you know, sort of Latino history. That's one of the areas I contributed. Think about its connections to Jewish history and other immigrants' history. And I think this book achieves that to some extent. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Matthew Garcia for discussing his new release, Eli and the Octopus, the CEO who tried to reform one of the world's most notorious corporations out of Harvard University Press. 
Subscribe to get more episodes from the New Books Network.